I realized as we looked around, uh, as I looked around during announcements this morning that we might have to create a new category. People in church always joke about people that only come to church on Christmas and Easter. Now we might have a new category for the people only come to church when Bob's talking about sex. Uh, a lot of new faces here this morning. The word must be on the street. And so for those of you who are sitting here thinking, wow, I showed up and I had no clue what you were talking about, you are in for a treat today. So... First of all, I just want to say thank you to my friend uh, Erica, who came by the other day and read through my sermon and made sure that I was also seeing things from a female perspective this morning, and so made some good changes there, Um, and so I appreciate that. Um, I do want to say that this is really kind of the third part. We've been talking about marriage and relationships all spring, but this little segment has been about a three-week progression. So if you're only hearing today's message I would really encourage you to go to our website, which is on your announcements, and listen to the first two, because the first two, especially the first one, kind of built um, a a theological understanding of a one flesh relationship, and now we're kind of going deeper with the implications of that. And so um, I really encourage you to, to look back on those messages as well. So right action follows right thinking. That's what we've been kind of talking about the last couple of weeks as we talk about this one flesh reality in marriage, that if we don't first understand what God intended for a husband and wife in the realm of sexual intimacy, that we will continually cheapen or neglect this gift, and our marriages will become prime breeding grounds for what we've talked about, which is this creeping separateness that tends to happen between us and our spouse. Last week, we looked at a verse in Luke 19.10 that said this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And so we talked a little bit about what was lost in the garden when sin entered the world. And we saw the transition from a husband and a wife standing uh, together you know, before God and before one another, as the Bible called it, naked and unashamed. And then we saw this shift that took place once sin entered the world as man and woman began covering themselves, not only physically, but also emotionally, and kind of building up a wall, creating hidden places of sin and shame that separate us from those that we love the most. And God's desire through the powerful healing experience of a sexual relationship between a husband and wife is to bring us back to the garden to reclaim the things that were lost, namely our oneness with him and then our oneness with one another. The rock band U2, which is my favorite band ever, um, they have a song uh, that talks about the mysterious distance between a man and a woman. And the writer of Proverbs uh, 30 would probably agree. This is what that writer said. It says, there are three things that are too amazing for me and four that I do not understand the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a woman. Paul, as we've talked about in Ephesians 5, called marriage a profound mystery. And sexual intimacy in a marriage relationship has the potential and the power to either build up a relationship or tear down a relationship depending on how we use it. And one of the, um, my favorite illustrations that also has a quote that goes with it from a book that I use during premarital counseling a lot with people is this. It has this picture, 
and I'm going to have to go over here and read it myself. It says, contrary to what some believe, sex is not a sin. Contrary to Hugh Hefner, it's not salvation either. Like nitroglycerin, it can be used either to blow up bridges or to heal hearts. Nitroglycerin is this, is this thing that can be used to, to explode things and, and different forms that can be used uh, to actually help heal your heart. Those of you that are in the medical field could probably explain that, but it has this dual purpose and sexual intimacy a lot of times is the same way. I think we do a tremendous disservice to our teenagers and our young adults when we build up uh, sexual intimacy that's going to happen in marriage to be this transcendent experience, something worth waiting for without sharing with them the biblical truths behind God's design for one flesh relationship that goes far beyond just the physical, physical expression of that. And so as a result, a lot of young married couples that have waited to have sex until they're married, they're, they're really kind of a little bit confused and disillusioned when their sexual relationship is difficult and challenging and it's a struggle and when they haven't been equipped with the right thinking to help it thrive. I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is page 794. First Corinthians chapter 7. Paul was writing... <clears throat> On the topic of marriage to a young church in Corinth, which is in Greece. And Corinth was a city uh, with a lot of commerce, a lot of travelers, and it was just pretty decadent. And they had a, a temple to their goddess of love that had over a thousand prostitutes. And so into that kind of hedonistic environment, Paul comes in with this message, this biblical message about marriage and what it's supposed to mean. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller kind of describes uh, the setting in Rome and kind of their views on marriage. He says, the view of the Roman culture in which the, the Corinthian Christians lived was that men were to take wives in order to have legal heirs, while sexual pleasure, if it was to be sought at all, would typically be found outside the marriage. And so into that environment, Paul comes... And has these words to say, if you look at, starting in verse 3 of chapter 7, it says, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Keller goes on to finish his thoughts. He says, historians point out, however, that Paul, in effect, redefines marriage as a context for the mutual satisfying of erotic desires in contrast to the pagan philosophical idea that the purpose of marriage was the procreation of legitimate heirs who would inherit and continue the name, property, and sacred rights of the family. In other words, Paul is telling married Christians that mutual, satisfying sexual relations must be an important part in their life together. In fact, this passage indicates that sex should be frequent and reciprocal. One spouse was not allowed to deny sex to the other. 
So as you can see, this was a huge shift in thinking for the people in Corinth, and I'm sure a lot of other places as well. And again, right thinking here is critical. Because of the one flesh reality in marriage, we no longer have the right to do with our bodies what we want. Our bodies belong to one another, just as Jesus submitted his physical body to God and was obedient and was willingly offered his body on the cross. Hopefully sexual intimacy won't be as tragic as the crucifixion. So Paul says that we both have this mutual responsibility to, to give our bodies and to offer our bodies for the enjoyment of the other. But, and this is key, not just in the sexual sense, but our whole bodies. And so we offer our bodies to our spouse. We are offering them our heart to, to try to love and encourage and support them. We offer them our minds as we seek to understand you know, their condition, their needs, what's going on. And we offer our bodies as well to gratify each other sexually. And Paul says that we are not to deprive each other of these things except by mutual consent and for a time so that we can pray and devote ourselves to prayer before coming together again. All right, it's time to get real this morning, okay? I have never, ever heard of a situation where two people in a marriage have mutually said, hey, why don't we take a break from having sex for a while and let's just really spend a lot of time praying together and, um, and then, you know, we'll get back together in another month or so. Um, I've never heard that, okay, ever. Maybe you're the exception to the rule. 99.99% of the time, married couples stop having sex because of some kind of emotional distance in their relationship because of some hurt that's happened. One or both of the spouses is harboring resentment or bitterness or a lack of forgiveness towards the other and is acting as if they are an individual and not one flesh, as God says they are, and they're acting as if their bodies are their own and not their spouses. And mutual prayer is rarely present in those situations. Most married couples have been in that place where their sexual relationship is severely strained or maybe even just non-existent for a time. Or one partner is feeling like the other person is kind of using them. So what do we do when we get there? One author said this. He said, sex is for whole life self-giving. However, the sinful heart wants to use sex for selfish reasons, not self-giving. And therefore, the Bible puts many rules around it to direct us to use it in the right way. And often when a sexual relationship is strained, many times we are just disconnected from the Word of God and what He says about how our attitude should be towards our partner. There can be no sexual intimacy without relationship. There can be a sexual act, but not sexual intimacy, minus relationship. Sex is best when it is wholehearted between the two people. And women are aroused by relationship. They want a husband who takes the time to listen to them and to explore their hearts. Um, they want to be wooed. 
Stacy Eldridge, um, who co-authored this book with her husband, she put it like this. She said, for a woman to give herself over to her husband fully, which is sex as it ought to be, he has to have won her heart and won it again, if only in small, simple ways today. And to be honest, many men simply just don't want to work that hard. And that's why pornography and prostitution are such booming industries around our world, is because it demands zero emotionally from a man. Women are guilty too. Women are guilty of seeking other relationships with their girlfriends, with their mom or dad, or with their own children that can fill their emotional tank so that they don't have to work hard at that relationship with their husband to receive things that they should be receiving from him. So here's the thought that came to my mind this week that I'm pretty sure is accurate. Husbands, if you are using your wives for sex and basically ignoring her emotionally, then my guess is that you are probably using God as well. Wives, the same is true for you. If you are a passive participant in your sexual relationship, offering your bodies but withholding your hearts emotionally, then you are guilty of a self-focused perspective as well. And so a good question for all of us to ask in this is this, is our attitude towards God and our relationship with Him, is it more about what we give in terms of our worship, our praise, our service, our generosity? Or is our attitude or perspective more about what we're wanting to get from God in terms of his blessings or his answered prayers or this self-satisfaction that we get from feeling like we're a good person? Our attitude towards God may have some direct correlation to our attitude towards our spouse. And women, if you don't feel like having sex with your husband, men, if you don't feel like loving your wife self-sacrificially and communicating with her, Your problem is not with your spouse. Your problem is with God. You are struggling to submit yourself to God's design for intimacy. And one of our problems is that oftentimes we are waiting for the other person to make the first move. So the wife says, well, when he shows me some love, then I'll give him some love. Or the husband says, I might be more attentive to her if we actually had sex once in a while. Submitting to one another in marriage means that we are jointly moving towards one another in intimacy, not keeping score of who's moving first or who moved first last time, but mutually serving one another and submitting ourselves to each other by laying down our pride for the sake of the relationship. And again, we take our cues from Christ in this. Look at Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, before we'd done anything to deserve anything from God, he made the first move. He laid down his life for us before we'd done anything to deserve it. That's what it means to love self-sacrificially and unconditionally, which is what we're called to do in marriage. 
Now, I'm going to give us all just a second to kind of breathe, okay? Because I know this is what's going on. My guess is that the Holy Spirit is hitting you with something right now, especially if you are married. And what happens with me is sometimes I get stuck on that thought, and then I miss everything else. (laughs) So I want to just give you a second to just decompress. If you need to write a note, something that you want to make sure you remember, you can. This is also just a very good reminder that sometimes it's good to listen to the messages a few times, because there might be things that you miss, because I know my mind starts going on rabbit trails about, oh man, i got to fix that or change that or, or whatever. Tim Keller, again, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, he has a great section on what he calls um, sex being a covenant renewal experience. This is what he says. Just hang with me for a minute. He says, then once you have given yourself in marriage, sex is a way of maintaining and deepening that union as the years go by. In the Old Testament, there were often covenant renewal ceremonies. When God entered into a covenant relationship with his people, he directed that periodically there be an opportunity to have them remember the terms of the covenant by first reading it together and then recommitting themselves to it. That was crucial if the people were to sustain a life of faithfulness. It's the same with the marriage covenant. When you get married, you make a solemn covenant with your spouse. The Bible calls your spouse your covenant partner. That day is a great day and your hearts are full. But as time goes on, there's a need to rekindle the heart and renew the commitment. There must be an opportunity to recall all that the other person means to you and give yourself anew. Sex between a husband and a wife is the unique way to do that. Indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people To reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. So, according to the Bible, a covenant is necessary for sex. It creates a place of security for vulnerability and intimacy. But though a marriage covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also necessary for the maintenance of the covenant. It is your covenant renewal service. You see, every time that we engage in sexual intimacy in marriage, we have the opportunity to say again with our whole bodies, I'm completely yours. And nothing feels better than to be fully received and affirmed in that intimate moment. More than any pleasure that you might get out of a sexual experience, the sense of being fully loved is what speaks the most to my heart. I think it's important for us to acknowledge that everything that we're talking about here and have been talking about the last three weeks is probably a radical shift in thinking for a lot of us. Viewing this whole one flesh reality, you know, a lot of the things that we, we talked and worked through last week about how God wants to seek and save what was lost and take us back to the garden, to our original nature and what he's trying to redeem there and how the sexual relationship is a part of that and then all the things we're talking about today I think it's important, this is just kind of a side note here, that as you walk away from here in the days ahead, that that you need to sit down with your spouse and you guys kind of need to talk and decide, are we united on this? Do we agree that this is the way that we want to live? This is the way we're going to view marriage, the way that we're going to view our sexual intimacy, and that might be a big shift in how we've handled it. 
but are we on the same page with this so that we can move forward together on this? It's going to take some conversation to really begin to live into this new understanding. When I do premarital counseling, I'm routinely asked how often a married, married couple should have sex. And I tell them, well, at my house every day, but I don't know about your house. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's a tricky question because we all know that in life we have a lot of different obstacles, things that come up in the course of being married for a long time that either make that season or that phase of your marriage an easier time for that to happen or a more difficult time uh, for that to happen. And so John Eldridge, who wrote this book, Love and War, he said this. He said, you need to do it often in a way you both enjoy it immensely. And my basic suggestion that I always tell people in premarital counseling is that you ought to engage in sexual intimacy with your spouse two to three times a week. Not just the first year, but every year. And I realize that, because um, I have three kids of my own, that that is going to ebb and flow at different times in your life and be more realistic than others, but I would never get too far away from that idea of, of frequency in your marriage. So if you're on the once every other yeep, leap year plan, I'm sorry, yeep year, if you're on the once every leap year plan, you might need to think about things or maybe once every lunar eclipse, you know, might be some changes that need to happen there. All right, I don't know what kind of adjustments you might need to make. But here's a question that I think is important for us to consider. So guys, guys, I need you to really listen to me right now. A lot of you are probably thinking, Bob, that sounds pretty good. But I want to challenge you with this. Are you willing to set aside two to three, 20 to 30 minute times a week to just communicate and pray with your spouse? Okay, because if you're going to be, you know, wanting things to go your way, are you willing to make that kind of commitment to your wife? I don't know many men that probably do a very good job of that. And so we've got some work to do here as well. As I said at the beginning of last week, I am not going to be able to address every issue that you have in your marriage or every problem you might be having in your sexual relationship right now. But I do believe that a lot of our problems go back to just having a right understanding of what marriage is, of the specific roles that God has called a husband and wife to that we've explored in Ephesians 5 that you can review a little bit if you need to, and also a proper understanding of the power and the potential for healing and affirmation that's possible in a sexual relationship. And so without trying to be too prescriptive, which means that I would give you like three easy steps to go home and try and everything's going to be great in your marriage, I do want to give you a few just suggestions that I think might lead to some breakthrough in your sexual relationship, in your sexual life. First is to talk about it with your spouse, to talk about it. Open and honest communication disarms speculation and assumptions, which are the devil's playground. Ask specific questions about your sexual experience. How was last night for you? What did you enjoy? What did you not enjoy? Was the disco ball too much? (laughs) 
I need Amos, man. And then this is probably the most important question, the most important insight that you could offer whether or not you were asked this. And I really would encourage you to write this down. Can I tell you why I haven't seemed interested lately? Can I tell you why I haven't seemed interested lately? If you will offer that to your spouse, can you think about the doors that could be opened there to really get to the heart of what's going on? And all of these questions need to be offered and explored in a place of safety, which means that you both have this understanding that your spouse isn't your enemy, but Satan is. And Satan is doing everything that he can to destroy your marriage. And so if you see yourself as advocates, even though things are difficult right now, and you kind of picture yourselves kind of locking arms back to back, facing the enemy who's trying to attack you, to see that you're on the same team. And in those moments of communication, it's important for us to, to really strive to hear the other person really believing and, and really saying, I'm striving for unity here. I want to figure out how we can come together on some things and to not be overly defensive because it's going to be difficult to begin communicating and it's going to take some time. But if you respond to your spouse in a harsh way or if you just shut down emotionally, when they're trying to be honest with you about some hurts or things that they've got going on and they are never going to open that door again. And so it's going to mean being willing to take some risks. It's going to mean being able to hear some things that might be hard to hear. But trying to be gracious towards the other person in that. And because it's so delicate, there has to be prayer involved. So first thing is talk about it, and secondly is pray about it. Pray for and with your mate. Because praying for one another, especially in areas of weakness or frustration, is going to bring about some trust and intimacy in order for you to have some some conversation and to keep bitterness and separateness from creeping in. And last week we talked about just how vulnerable prayer can feel. And a lot of times when we're struggling, it is going to be the last thing you want to do is to pray with one another. And so husbands, I'm going to challenge you to take the lead in this. Take the lead in in initiating prayer with your spouse. Take the lead in initiating conversation. And finally, so talk about it, pray about pray about it, finally fight for it. Fight for it. And know that God is fighting with you. In his book, Love and War, John Eldridge gives this reminder. He says, the majority of marriages at some point hit sexual hard times. How do we love during them? Initiate anyway, both of you. Even if you're afraid. Even if you're not sure your spouse will respond. As a friend advised a young woman... 
Sometimes you have to kiss in order to feel like kissing. Sometimes you have to make love in order to feel like making love. When we submit to God's design for marriage, whether we feel it or not, Jesus sets things into motion that we can never imagine or set into motion ourselves. And I would just add that if you were saying these, uh, a friend was advising a young man that sometimes you have to communicate when you don't feel like communicating, that it goes both ways. But I think that last sentence is so critical. When we submit to God's design for marriage, whether we feel it or not, Jesus sets things into motion that we can never imagine or set into motion ourselves. You see, the reason why it can seem so overwhelming to turn things around that are broken in our marriage relationship is that so often we are seeing things through the lens of what we feel like we're capable of doing. And so we think, I just don't think I can handle that. I don't think I can pull that off. I don't think I can trust that much. I don't think I can be that self-sacrificial. I don't think I can make another move towards my spouse and be rejected again. Our problem is is that we're, we're focusing too much on our ability and our understanding. And God says, listen, folks, this is something that I want to see happen. This is something I've already told you is true. You and your spouse are one. And so any effort that you make towards that, I'm going to give you the ability. I'm going to give you the courage, the love, the compassion, the tenderness. If you're heart desires that, I'm going to give you the things that you need to do what it is that I've called you to do. And so our focus needs to get away from our emotion and our power and needs to focus itself on the person who says, you know, all things are possible through Christ and that I can do anything. To break out of old broken patterns is going to feel like a tremendous amount of risk. But if you are not engaging (laughs) If intimacy doesn't feel risky sometimes, then you're probably playing it way too safe. I want to close with with one last quote this morning. This uh, book, another great book called The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller wrote with his wife, Kathy. And he says this, Kathy and I often liken sex in a marriage to oil in an engine. Without it, the friction between all the moving parts will burn out the motor. Without joyful, loving sex, the friction in a marriage will bring about anger and resentment and hardness and disappointment. And rather than being the commitment glue that holds you together, it can become a force to divide you. Never give up working on your sex life. This morning as we come to the communion table... For me today, it's a reminder, again, of the oneness that God desires to have with us. That's a pattern for the oneness he says we're supposed to have with our spouse. And it's also a reminder for me today that I can't do these things in my own strength, that I need him. I need to receive the strength that he has for me through his victory on the cross that makes all changes in our life possible. I just want to remind you that I'm always here to talk, help people through these times. If you need someone just to pray with you or whatever, I'll be available and around after the service. Um, and just remember that there is hope in Christ, uh, that things can change, but it's going to take effort and, and a mutual desire on both people's parts to talk, 
to pray, to fight for something that is really powerful that God has given us. It can be a blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time this morning. I thank you for your truth. Lord, I know I've been married for 20 years. I know how hard sexual intimacy is at times. Um, Lord, we get busy. We get distracted. We, get, we allow bitterness and hardness to build up because we're not being honest. We're not communicating. Lord, there's a lot of healing that needs to take place here today, I know. But God, I pray that we would re- just remember that, <laughs> that our spouse is not our enemy, that Satan is, but Lord, you're on our team, <laughs> and so we know that we're victorious with you. So God, I pray that you would just give us courage and hope as we move forward. God, that you would just break through broken patterns and chains that have bound us up and kept us from being free like you promised that we are. And you would begin just doing a work in us, changing our hearts, knocking down the walls that we've built up between one another. God, as we come before you today, I just pray that you would just hear our prayers as we confess our sins to you. God, just hear us in this time. 